CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London on the 12th and 13th of June, 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. I will be there all weekend, so come and join us. Quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now, and you can pay in installments. Plus, not only are tickets COVID-proof, CrimeCon also have a date for September 2021 if COVID is still causing trouble for us in June. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all there. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Patricia Murphy. Glasnevin is a village on the north side of Dublin, which is steeped in history and beauty. Nestled on the banks of the River Tolka, it's just three kilometres from Dublin city centre. It's a residential area away from the heavy traffic of the city streets that offers stunning sights such as the Botanic Gardens and the reason Glasnevin is known as the dead centre of Dublin, Glasnevin Cemetery. There are over one and a half million people buried in Glasnevin Cemetery from renowned historical figures to ordinary citizens like my dad. There are more people buried in Glasnevin than there are living in Dublin. At around 8am on May 28, 1996, a construction worker was walking through a laneway to the Rise, a quiet cul-de-sac in Glasnevin. It was early on a Tuesday morning and the streets were quiet, apart from people making their way to work. In Wood Park, a laneway off the cul-de-sac, houses had just been built and the remnants of the build were stacked up to be taken away on a paved area between Wood Park and the Rise. In the middle, between a yellow skip and some pallets, the man noticed someone lying on the ground. It was a woman, dressed just in her underwear, and she was facing the wall in the fetal position. Mr. Lindsay told the Irish Times that he knew she was dead by looking at her, as she was blue in the face, the colour of death. The construction worker covered the woman's shoulders with a jumper while waiting for the emergency services to arrive. After alerting the guardie, the scene was cordoned off and the chief state pathologist, Professor John Harbison, arrived. The guardie already had their suspicions about the identity of the victim. Just hours earlier, a woman who lived in the area had been reported missing by her husband. The woman's body was provisionally identified by a worker from Lismore House as being Patricia Murphy. Patricia had recently started a job at Lismore House B&B and had last been seen leaving work there the previous day. Patricia lived on Griffith Avenue, just 200 yards from where her body was discovered. 
the Wood Park Lane building site was almost directly opposite her home. She lived with her husband, David, and their four children, an eight-year-old girl, five- and three-year-old boys, and a four-month-old baby girl. At 1am the night before her body was discovered, her husband David had reported Patricia missing at Whitehall Garda Station, stating that she had not returned home after working in Lismore House B&B that morning. Gardi at the scene noticed that Patricia's body lay on top of a piece of black bin liner, and an initial examination of her body by a doctor confirmed that rigor mortis had set in, and there was a strap mark around her neck. Marks were seen on her head and neck, and preliminary inspections indicated that she had been strangled. A post-mortem was carried out by John Harbison in the city morgue later on that day. The pathologist had to examine whether or not Patricia had been sexually assaulted, due to the way she was partially dressed when her body was discovered that morning. The results of the post-mortem indicated that Patricia had been asphyxiated with a strap-like object, likely with a buckle on it. The injury to her neck had a herringbone pattern. The Gardie appealed to the public to come forward if they saw Patricia any time after 10.30am on the 27th of May. The 34-year-old mother had last been seen wearing black ski pants, a black polo neck, white walking shoes and a blue and pink coat. She was described as being around 5 foot 2 inches tall with light brown hair. Her clothes had not been located with her body and locals were asked to check their gardens and bins for the items. Superintendent Jack Behan was in charge of the investigation and confirmed publicly that Patricia had not been sexually assaulted, but her death was caused by strangulation. It should have taken Patricia 15 minutes to walk home from Lismore House to her home on Griffith Avenue. She was a keen walker and was often spotted power walking by her neighbours. After the discovery of her body, one of Patricia's neighbours said that she was, quote, a beautiful, beautiful person. She was friendly, outgoing and soft-spoken, end quote. Patricia enjoyed speed walking and had promised this neighbour that she would bring her out walking when she had a pair of suitable shoes. Patricia and her family had moved to Glasnevin from her home place in Kilrush, County Clare, two years earlier. Patricia was born in London and raised in Kilrush by her single mother, Bridget Behan. The mother and daughter were very close. Patricia attended the Convent of Mercy School and went on to waitress in the local hotel to remain close to her mother. Patricia was a fan of dancing. She often went to the Saturday night disco at the Atlantic Hotel in Kilkee, eight miles from Kilrush. It was there that she met David Murphy. David was a handyman at the hotel. He kept to himself and didn't seem to have much interest in anything other than slot machines in local casinos. When David and Patricia began seeing each other, David had already gotten a teenager in the town pregnant. This caused issues with Patricia's family who struggled to warm to her new partner, but it did not deter Patricia. Patricia and David Murphy were married less than a year into the relationship and welcomed their first child the following year in 1987. In late 1994, they moved to Dublin, where there would be better work prospects. David worked as a self-employed electrician and carpenter, and Patricia had started a job in the B&B just two weeks before her murder. Geraldine Lynch worked as a housekeeper in Lismore House on the Upper Drumcondra Road 
and hired Patricia after they hit it off in an interview. Ms. Lynch said that the morning Patricia disappeared, she had served the patrons their breakfast and was happy when she left to go home. Patricia's funeral mass was held at Corpus Christi Church near to her home in Dublin. Her family and friends travelled from Clare to pay their respects. The murder had shocked the community and Patricia's loved ones. She left behind four young children, and the Gardaí were still searching for information about her death. Searches conducted in the area turned up a large amount of clothing, but investigators had to check to see if any of it belonged to Patricia. Then, on the 6th of June, David Murphy was arrested on suspicion of murder and detained at Santry Garda Station for 12 hours before being released without charge. The Gardee told the press that they were preparing a file for the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The Gardee had arrested Murphy after a bag of clothing belonging to both him and Patricia was found in a white plastic bag that was pulled from the River Tolka. A witness had seen a man throwing the bag into the river on May 28th, just after midnight. Patricia was reported missing by David shortly after, and her body was discovered just hours later. In early September of that year, David Murphy was re-arrested, but there was a question about the legality of the arrest and whether or not it had breached Murphy's constitutional rights. Murphy's defence barrister, Mary Ellen Ring, said that the arrest had not been in compliance with Section 10 of the Criminal Justice Act 1984. This section says that a suspect cannot be arrested for a second time unless it's ordered by a judge after they are presented with new information which came to light after the initial arrest and release of the suspect. The Gardee had applied to the District Court on the 29th of August to re-arrest Murphy, and the order was granted. However, the defence claimed that the new evidence was insufficient to incriminate their client, but Mr Justice Kelly, who was presiding, agreed with the Gardee. This new evidence included that a witness had come forward to state that she had seen a man close to the area where Patricia Murphy's body was found, late on the 27th of May. The witness identified the man as being David Murphy from a lineup of 12 photographs, which were shown to her on the 27th of June. The other piece of new evidence was that two days later, on the 29th of June, David and Patricia's landlord informed the Gardee of a conversation he'd had with David Murphy, in which Murphy said that the Gardee would be waiting a long time for him to crack. But during this hearing, the period that the Gardee were allowed to detain Murphy for elapsed. Murphy was free to go home and could not be re-arrested unless new evidence emerged. This episode is sponsored in part by Manscaped. Ladies and gents, I have an issue with a delicate nature to discuss with you. Valentine's Day is upon us and I have come across the perfect gift for the man in your life. Specifically, the perfect gift for your man's below me down there's. Manscaped are the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, with 2 million men already trusting Manscaped grooming products to take care of their nethers. 
the best place to start is definitely the Perfect Package 3.0, which is led by Manscaped's revolutionary third-generation Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. It's also waterproof, which prevents a mess on the bathroom floor and in the sink. Ladies, can we say hallelujah? I also have it on good authority that Manscaped Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver are a must to prevent sweating, smelling and sticking. And these products smell good. A definite priority from my perspective, though I guess comfort is important too. And the Perfect Package 3.0 also comes with a pair of Manscaped boxers that will keep you feeling fresh all day. It's time to upgrade those overused pair of boxers to Manscaped's high-performance anti-chafing boxers. You can complete your grooming game with the new Refined Cologne Signature Scent by Manscaped. With the same signature scent that's in all Manscaped formulas, this cologne is an ideal complement to the collection. This is the perfect package for your perfect package. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code MENS. Your balls will thank you. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. And Men's Rail listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. January is over, finally. But this year, more than ever, it's pretty clear that we're going to have stuff to deal with in the coming months. I can't help but think that my life will never be the same after the past year, and I am so thankful that I have a licensed professional therapist to help me navigate through all the various challenges daily life throws at me. And that's what's so wonderful about BetterHelp. They match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs and you can start your online professional counselling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that might not be available in your area. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counselling. Financial aid is available and you can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely, thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash M-E-N-S. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Men's Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. David Murphy was arrested again in mid-April of 1997, and this time he was charged with the murder of his wife at the Dublin District Court. He was remanded into custody at Mountjoy Prison. The following Monday, Murphy appeared before the High Court and Mr Justice McGuinness to appeal for bail. Detective Sergeant Tom McCarrick told the court that he believed Murphy would not return to stand trial for murder if he was granted bail and he also thought that Murphy may try to intimidate witnesses. The conditions the judge imposed in relation to the bail were that Murphy could not obtain a passport or interfere with witnesses, and he also had to live with his father and report to the Gardaí twice a day. 
At an earlier Dublin District Court hearing, it had emerged that Murphy had received almost £9,000 from his wife's life insurance policy following her murder, one third of which was to go to their children. And after this, Murphy's father Patrick had signed a bond for the surety. If Murphy was convicted of murder, the money would have to be repaid to the insurance company, meaning that Patrick Murphy would be liable for a substantial financial loss if his son did not repay the money following a conviction. In the end, the bail request was approved on the conditions that Murphy posted £200 himself. His father made a lodgment of £2,000 to Mountjoy Prison and he also provided an independent surety of £4,000. And so David Murphy was once again free, pending a murder trial, which was scheduled for that summer. The trial was, however, put back due to a delay in presenting the book of evidence on the case, and Murphy was remanded on continuing bail until November of 1998. Finally, the trial began on December 3rd, with David Murphy pleading not guilty to murdering his wife on the 27th or 28th of May, 1996. Presiding over the trial was Mr Justice Cyril Kelly. During the prosecution's opening arguments, Mr Gregory Murphy told the jury that this was a case of murder, not manslaughter, provocation or self-defence. Counsel for the state said that the evidence showed that David Murphy killed his wife before using his ingenuity to convince the police otherwise. During this opening speech, it also emerged that the key witnesses at the trial would be the defendant's own children, who would say that they had seen their father kill their mother. Senior counsel for the state told the jury that their case relied on the evidence of the three children, that their father put them to bed on the 27th and then, after midnight, one of the children woke the others to tell them that there was a monster in the garage. When they went downstairs to see what the little boy meant, they saw their mother dead on the garage floor before their father brought them back to bed. The prosecutor said that Murphy did everything he had to do to destroy the evidence of his crime before he reported his wife missing. But there were things that had occurred that were out of the defendant's control. Prosecutor Murphy urged the jury to ask why David Murphy had not answered the phone four times that day when his wife was missing. The barrister also said that they would hear from a witness who had seen a man throwing a white plastic bag into the Tolka River in the middle of the night before Patricia's body was found. The white plastic bag was found by the Garda Sabakwa team and it contained Patricia Murphy's missing clothes and jeans belonging to the defendant, her husband. A tray from a buggy or a child stroller had also been found belonging to the Murphys, and the prosecution alleged that David Murphy had used the buggy to transport his wife's body to the laneway where he dumped her behind a skip, and then dumped the buggy tray. The court then heard from witnesses, whose testimony pieced together the timeline of Patricia's last known movements after she left work at Lismore House. Anne Devlin told the jury that she saw Patricia walking towards her home at around a quarter to eleven on the 27th of May, and other witnesses corroborated this. Yvonne Costello also saw Patricia walking towards her home and testified that the deceased woman had looked anxious and worried. 
Ms. Costello identified the jacket found in the plastic bag taken from the river as being, quote-unquote, very like the one she'd seen Patricia wearing that morning. The second day of the trial saw the introduction of testimony that had never been produced at an Irish trial before, video link testimony from three of the victim's children. The children were testifying to Mr. Justice MacDonnell from a courtroom in another building. The eldest girl was the first to speak, who was then aged nine. She recalled how, two years earlier, on the 27th of May, she had had breakfast and kissed her mother goodbye before being driven to school in her father's car. After school, she was collected by her father and she expected to see her mother at home, but she wasn't there. The girl said that her father went looking for their mother and they all went searching for Patricia together later on that evening, checking the streets near where they lived, but they couldn't find her. She said that her father went out to look for their mother numerous times that evening and he'd simply told the children, quote, no luck when he returned without her that night. George Beringham, for the prosecution, questioned the little girl about whether she had seen her mother dead and she'd replied, quote, yes in the garage, end quote. She said that her youngest brother had woken her and the other brother up to tell them that there was a monster in the garage. The girl and her siblings went downstairs to look and when she turned on the light, she'd seen her mother's body lying against the wall with her father standing at the doorway. She said that her mother's head was slanted and demonstrated the position by tilting her head to the right. When her brother tried to run out of the garage, their father grabbed him by the hand and brought them all up to bed before slapping them. When she asked her father what was in the garage the next morning, the girl told the court that David Murphy had said that it was just a monster. When the Murphy's eldest daughter was cross-examined by Mary Ellen Ring for the defence, the girl said that she had gone to bed later than usual that night but couldn't be sure of the exact time. She thought it was sometime around 11pm. The girl said that she had checked on her four-month-old sister through the night when she heard her crying in her parents' room because her parents weren't there and she thought that her father was out walking around looking for their mother. The girl explained that she had initially told the guardie that she hadn't seen her mother's body in the garage because she was afraid that she would get into trouble with her dad. The second eldest Murphy child testified next. He was five at the time of his mother's death and the boy had to be comforted by a court steward as he struggled to hold back tears when asked about the night that he saw his mother's body in the garage. He said that that evening they had all gone to bed without dinner. Their mum usually cooked, but she wasn't there. The boy then told the judge that he remembered his little brother coming upstairs, saying that there was a monster in the garage. He said that when they went downstairs to see, they saw a body lying on the floor. He clarified, quote, my mams. The boy said that his father came into the garage then and took his hand before bringing them upstairs, slapping them and telling them to go to bed. He said that initially he thought it was a monster in the garage before he realised it was his mam. Finally, the youngest Murphy boy took the stand to give evidence via video link. He had been three at the time of his mother's death. He told the court that he remembered his mother lying on the ground in the garage with her eyes closed and that she didn't answer him when he asked her a question. He told the barristers 
that he saw his father hitting his mother on the head with a hammer and that he saw a rope around his mother's neck. On the 7th of December, the chief state pathologist gave evidence of the post-mortem he'd carried out on Patricia Murphy's body on the day it was discovered, the 28th of May 1996. Dr. John Harbison said that he believed Patricia's body had been placed beside the skip in the lane late on May 27th. Dr. Harbison told the court that Patricia's cause of death was listed as asphyxia as a result of ligature strangulation and said that he thought the object used was strap-like, possibly with a buckle on it. He had surmised this having seen a transverse herringbone pattern on Patricia's neck and he believed it was likely caused by a noose tightened by means of a buckle, like a belt. The post-mortem also revealed bruising on Patricia Murphy's left chest and ribcage and internal bleeding beneath her scalp. Dr. Harbison said that the force needed to inflict this type of head injury would have been from a flat and fairly blunt object, but not from a hammer, like the second youngest Murphy child had testified. Dr. Harbison said that the injury was likely inflicted when Patricia was lying on the ground. After this, the Murphys' landlord also testified. Fergus Darcy said that the Murphys usually paid their rent in cash once a month. When he called to the house on the 24th of May about the rent due, Patricia had agreed to give the money to Mr. Darcy's friend, Joseph O'Neill. Mr. O'Neill had called to the house on the 27th at around 8pm, but no one had answered the door. After informing Mr. Darcy about this, the landlord rang the Murphy's house about four times that evening, but the phone rang out. The calls went unanswered. When he called the next morning, David Murphy answered the phone and informed the landlord that his wife was missing. The next time Mr. Darcy saw David Murphy was on June 29th. At this meeting, David Murphy paid the outstanding rent and told the landlord that he was moving on. Next to the stand was a man who lived in the area near to the River Tolka. It was his evidence that after midnight on May 28th, as he was standing outside with his dog, he spotted a man on a footbridge over the Tolka. Then he'd heard a splash and saw a bag in the water. The bridge the witness referred to joined Woodville Road with Millmount Avenue near Griffith Park. The witness told the court that the man was slender and around 5 foot 9 inches tall, and he'd been able to identify the man he saw in a Garda lineup on June 6, 1996, as being David Murphy, the defendant. After this, Garda John Keneally was called to testify about a plastic bag that was recovered from the Tolka on May 28th. Inside the bag was a multicoloured jacket, a pink shirt, a pair of socks, a comb, green jeans, and a belt. The Murphy's next-door neighbour testified that at 20 past midnight on May 28th, he had heard a high-pitched scream and a male voice coming from the Murphy's house. When he was questioned by the defence about why he hadn't mentioned this to the guardie closer to the time of the discovery of Patricia's body, he said that it must have slipped his mind. His partner also identified the jacket found in the Tolka River as belonging to Patricia Murphy. Patricia's friend Emer Lawler testified that she recognised the green jeans and pink shirt found with the jacket in the river as belonging to the defendant, David Murphy. Further, she said she'd seen him wearing these clothes on the 26th of May. 
Patricia's mother, Bridget, took to the witness stand to give evidence next. 78-year-old Bridget said that she had received a phone call from David Murphy on the 28th of May, asking if Patricia was in Kilrush with her. Bridget was worried and said no and asked if everything was all right. David Murphy said that Patricia hadn't come home that day, but told the worried mother nothing was wrong. An hour later, David Murphy called again and told Patricia's mother that he had found her and that everything was all right. Bridget recalled that David Murphy said he'd found Patricia at a friend's house in Bray and that Patricia would call her when she got home. The call never came, and shortly after, the guardie informed Bridget that her daughter had been found dead. Later, in a 1998 interview with the Irish Times, Bridget would reveal that despite receiving a lump sum from Patricia's life insurance policy for funeral expenses, David Murphy had left his wife in an unmarked grave. In the end, locals had paid for her headstone. On December 8th, court was adjourned in order to hear legal argument. A matter had come to light that related to the trial. New evidence had been discovered, and the prosecution wanted the jury to hear it. Murphy's trial resumed a week later on Tuesday the 15th of December. The new evidence would be allowed before the court. Gary Ryan, a shop owner from Finglas, had seen the trial coverage in the paper and recalled helping David Murphy move from Griffith Avenue to another residence in June of 1996. He gave Gardy a statement on the 7th of December and testified to its contents in court just a week later, after the judge had ruled his statement could be admitted into evidence. Mr Ryan said that at the time he had believed that the man he was helping to move house was the landlord, but later he'd recognised him from media coverage as being David Murphy. Ryan said that Murphy had told him that the, quote, woman found at the skip, end quote, was his wife and that the guardie were trying to pin it on him, but Murphy told the witness that the guardie were not clever enough to catch him out. More witnesses were called to give evidence about what they saw on the days around Patricia's murder, including a milkman who sold David Murphy two litres of milk at half four on the morning of May 28th, and two men who had urinated near to the skip the night before Patricia's body was found. The men told the court that they were sure the body had not been there at the time. A neighbour of the Murphys, Carol Swan, told the court that she had spoken to the Murphys' youngest son on June 6th and had asked him why, when she heard him calling for his mother in the back garden on the 27th of May, his mother had not answered him. According to Ms Swan, the three-year-old had replied that it was because his mammy had been asleep in the garage, that his daddy had hit her and she had fallen asleep. The boy had also told the neighbour that he had asked his mother to give his daddy back his money, and showed Ms Swan how his father had hit his mother with a closed fist. Friends and family members of Patricia had testified that they thought Murphy was abusive towards Patricia throughout their marriage. David Murphy had problems with gambling and had racked up debt over the years. Patricia hadn't wanted to leave Claire and move to Dublin, but Murphy had threatened to go and take the children with him if she didn't. The court also heard that Murphy had caused the family to accumulate debt while living in Kilrush by getting Patricia to take out loans, or by him charging clients for jobs that he didn't finish. 
the Kilrush Credit Union had begun legal action to recover debts of around £9,000. He had also been suspected of taking their eldest daughter's communion money and taking the money Patricia's mother had sent for her communion dress. After the court had heard the various witnesses who described the difficulties that were ongoing in the Murphys' marriage, the jury were read statements made by David Murphy on May 28th to the guardie at Whitehall Garda Station. He'd told police that he had met Patricia shortly after he moved to County Clare, and she became pregnant in December of 1986 but lost the baby. They got married shortly after and had moved into a council house, which they subsequently bought before moving to Dublin in 1994. David explained to the Gardaí that Patricia wanted to move back to Clare and had applied for a house there, but he did not want to move back. However, Murphy said that he would have for the sake of the family. When Murphy was arrested on the 6th of June, he told the Gardaí that he had not killed his wife, but nevertheless went on to tease police during the interview that if they told him how he'd killed his wife, he would tell them why he did it. During questioning, he was asked how his clothing ended up in a bag with his wife's missing clothes, and he responded that he didn't know. David Murphy's defence said that the guardie had hounded and harassed their client and alleged that the Garda account of interviews with the accused had been twisted to imply his guilt. For instance, the guardie that testified about the interviews said that Murphy made statements like, quote, I'm not telling the truth just yet, end quote. Detective McCarrick told the court that Murphy came to Santry Garda Station on the 7th of June following his release from custody, and when the detective had asked, quote, wouldn't it be great if you could turn the clock back to moments before you killed your wife, end quote, Murphy had replied, quote, yes, but I can't, end quote. When Murphy was arrested again on September 3rd, 1996, he was asked if he had told anyone the truth since May 27th, and Murphy had allegedly replied, quote, No, I can't talk to anyone. I just carry it all myself, end quote. Ten days into the trial, the woman who fostered Patricia and David Murphy's children after the murder told the court that the children had spoken about what had happened to their mother while in foster care. She was called as a defence witness and recalled on the stand that on one occasion when the youngest boy began talking about his father hitting his mother in the garage, the older boy interrupted him and said it was just a dream. Then David Murphy took the stand to testify in his own defence. He said that he and his wife had a good marriage and only argued on the odd occasion. Murphy was asked about the buggy tray that was found in a skip after his wife's murder and he'd suggested that it might have fallen off when he was walking the children to school. He said that he was under intense pressure from the guardie following Patricia's murder and that the investigating detectives had become aggressive and intrusive when questioning him. The prosecution asked him if he thought his son was defending him when he said that the story about their mother in the garage was a dream, and Murphy said that this wasn't a case of defending him, that the boy was just telling the truth. David Murphy said that he did not believe that his children were torn between their loyalty to their dad 
or their dead mother, and told the court that he believed that the children had eventually given the answers that were wanted after being questioned by the guardie. The prosecutor, Gregory Murphy, asked the defendant if he was asking the jury to believe that the children would prefer to see their father go to jail to stop being asked questions, and Murphy said that he was, but that this was because the children didn't understand what prison was like. It was the prosecution's assertion that the children had told the guardie what had happened when they were free from their father's influence, and that they had all said they'd seen their mother dead in the garage. In response to this, David Murphy implied that the children had said what they said because they were leaned on by the investigators. When defending himself as to why he did not seem to look very hard for his wife, David Murphy said that he didn't feel like he needed to know where Patricia was 24 hours a day, and that if something had happened to her, someone would have called him. The prosecution then pointed out that he hadn't been answering the phone, to which Murphy responded that he had been, but just didn't hear his landlord call that evening. Then the buggy belonging to the Murphys was brought into the courtroom and David Murphy was asked to attach the tray found in the skip to it. It matched perfectly. CCTV evidence from a post office on May 27th showed that the tray had been attached to the Murphys' buggy that morning. The defendant suggested again that his son may have dislodged this tray with his feet while they were walking his older children to school which was close to the skip that the tray had been found in. Murphy denied using the buggy to move Patricia's body from their house on Griffith Avenue to the skip near the rise in the early hours of May 28, 1996. He also said that there was no evidence that Patricia had been killed in the house. In his closing argument for the defence, Brendan Grogan told the jury that the prosecution had not established Patricia Murphy's whereabouts between the time she left work on May 27th and when her body was found the next day. He said that Patricia was seen walking away from work that morning and the pathologist stated that she died on the evening of May 27th. And so he asked, quote, where was she between when she was seen walking that morning and when she died? End quote. Mr. Grogan also said that the children were calm after their mother's murder despite the trauma of supposedly seeing her dead body in the garage. It was his assertion to the jury that there were too many holes in the evidence presented by the state, saying, quote, too many doubts, too many imponderables, end quote. George Berringham for the prosecution told the jury that there was, quote, no explanation consistent with the innocence of David Murphy, end quote, for how his and his wife's clothing were discovered together in a plastic bag in the River Tolka. Mr. Berringham asked the jury to take all of the evidence and put it together. By doing this, he argued it built a strong and coherent case, which enabled them to find Murphy guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Beringham reiterated the evidence of guilt in the case, Murphy not calling his wife's work to look for her, the witnesses that had seen her walking home, the neighbour hearing the little boy calling for his mother, the bag of clothes found in the river, and the prosecution's theory that Patricia's body had been transported in the buggy before David Murphy tried to hide the evidence of his act by getting rid of his clothes and the buggy tray. In his instructions, Mr Justice Kelly told the jury that the defence's case was that Murphy did not do it. 
He said that they should also keep in mind that the children's evidence had discrepancies and that cross-examination by the defence had shown that they were suggestible. The judge also told the jury that, even if they disregarded some of the prosecution's evidence, the remaining evidence would still entitle them to convict Murphy of murder, and that that evidence must create a strong conclusion of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt for them to do so. This concluded the presentation of evidence in the case, and the jury were sent out to reach their verdict. On the 22nd of December, after four hours of deliberations across two days, the jury of eight men and four women returned with a unanimous guilty verdict, finding David Murphy criminally responsible for the murder of Patricia Murphy. Mr Justice Kelly thanked the jury for their service and complimented the defence and prosecution counsels on their exemplary conduct throughout the trial. Addressing Murphy, he imposed the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. Speaking outside the court, Detective Sergeant Tom McCarrick said that a chapter was closing on a very tragic case, but that there was no glory in it for anyone as four children had been left without their parents. The three oldest Murphy children were placed together with a foster family and the youngest girl was placed with another. Carol Swan, the neighbour who testified that the youngest child had told her he saw his mother in the garage, said that she hoped the children would realise that they had spoken up for their mother when she had not been able to speak up for herself. It was assumed that the motive for Patricia's murder was money. The couple were under financial stress. Despite paying only £33 a week for a house with subsidised rent and David Murphy bringing in £152 a week in social welfare benefits, the couple had fallen behind on rent. They didn't always have a car and money was always stretched thin because Murphy would gamble it away. On the morning of May 27th, Patricia had been concerned about their youngest daughter's health and had asked David to take her to the doctor as she was leaving to go to work. Patricia had dealt with health problems herself, having come through cervical cancer and the resulting treatment a few years earlier. And his trial for murder was not David Murphy's first brush with the law. Murphy was known to the Gardee. In the late 1970s, he had set four cars alight near to his home in Fibsborough in the North City Centre after being locked out of his house by his father. He was prosecuted for this offence and the following year he was convicted of burglary. Then, in 1995, shortly after the couple moved to Dublin, Patricia had been working at a bakery in Santry and £2,000 went missing. Murphy was caught in the bakery with a copied key and both he and Patricia were arrested. David Murphy was convicted of stealing and sentenced to probation. The year 1996 saw the violent deaths of 16 women, according to the Irish Times. The incidences of extreme violence towards women were significantly higher than in the years previous. The 1996 Domestic Violence Act was introduced in March of that year. The Act made provision for the protection of a spouse and children whose safety required it due to the conduct of another person in their home. It would also allow for an arrest without a warrant, an immediate hearing for the accused and barring orders to be put in place to protect those who needed them. That year, applications for barring orders went up from an average of 74 per week to 122. 
That's 122 victims a week coming forward to try and leave an abusive relationship. According to family members, Patricia had planned to move back to Clare. It's not known whether or not David would have gone with her. It is a fact that the most dangerous time for a person experiencing intimate partner violence is the time when they have left or are planning to leave their abuser. The exact details of what happened to Patricia Murphy and why it happened will never likely be known. But young children saw something truly traumatic on the night their mother was killed. A monster in the garage, in the form of their father. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Deborah Moore, Karen Pearson, Kieran O'Rooney, Anna Flynn and Sarah Cahill. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So, check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Manscaped and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes and get yourself a discount while you're at it. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane of the Crime Lapse podcast. And Mens Rea is produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime aficionado like I am, then my show is for you. Join me as I peel back the curtains in this immersive storytelling podcast that reveals the life and crimes of some of the most evil minds. At the end of each episode, you'll be left wondering, how will you sleep tonight? Search for True Crime Fan Club podcast in any podcast directory. You won't want to miss an episode.